0: Hey everyone, big news. Up Next in Commerce is now available for sponsorship. If you love this show and you or maybe your company or someone in your network that you know may want to reach an audience of supremely smart e-commerce leaders, then reach out to me at stephanie@mission.org, at and I'll give you all the juicy details around what our strategic partnerships look like. Email me at stephanie@mission.org, at and let's chat.
1: I just kind of see content and advertising as like a guest in people's homes. Most people do not want someone who's gonna come over to their house for dinner and just spend the entire time talking about themselves. And so as brands or content generation organizations, if the only thing we're doing is going me, 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 then of course people are gonna be turned off by it. That's the exact definition of bad advertising.
2: After his first trip down the e-commerce road ended in failure, JB Sauceda swore to never again travel down that path. But life has this funny way of coming full circle and turning your failure into success. Today, Jay is the founder and CEO of Texas Humor, an e-commerce shop so successful that Jay decided to take the leap and also build Sauceda Industries, which helps manage not only Texas Humor logistics, but the logistics of many other D2C companies. The journey from failure to repeated success is a winding one, and Jay takes us through it all on this episode of Up Next in Commerce. Along the way, he digs into what it takes to build a company from a base of loyal supporters and his advice to marketers, including how to be a trusted friend rather than a bother in a consumer's life. Plus, he explains why customer expectations around fast shipping don't always have to apply to the products you offer.
0: Enjoy this episode. Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce, connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com/commerce. Hey everyone, it is Stephanie. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to our weekly e-commerce newsletter at mission.org slash upnext in commerce. It's amazing, it's great, you will learn a lot of good things. Go subscribe. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Upnext in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder at Mission.org. Today, we're chatting with J.B. Sauceda, the CEO of Sauceda Industries. Jay, welcome.
1: Hey, how's it going?
0: I'm really excited to have you on. As we mentioned before the show, I'll be moving to your neck of the woods here in a month or so.
1: It's a very popular thing to do these days.
0: That's great. Yeah, I'm excited to get there. So today, I want to talk about two things that feel very dispersed. We were talking about Texas humor and logistics, but I think the best place to start would be your background. So then I can guide the listeners through the story in the way that makes the most sense?
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I I grew up uh, southeast of Houston in in a uh, blue collar town called uh, LaPorte, Texas, which is where there's, you know, a lot of the chemical plants, refineries that most people can, you know, kind of picture with the whole oil production industry of Texas. Um, But the really great thing about LaPorte that I loved was, you know, it it sort of, uh, you know, fostered really any kind of, of career development and sort of adult development that you might want. So if you wanted to go to high school and, you know, upper education or, or you know, kind of uh, undergrad education wasn't your thing, you could still graduate and go make 70, $80,000 working in the chemical plants close by um, and really support your family and, and do a really great thing. Uh, if you were a creative kid like I was, the, the high school uh, there was really fantastic about fostering. Ah, uh, creativity of young people and and developing their careers, um, dependent upon what sort of direction they wanted to go. So it wasn't like you know one of these small towns that you see in a movie where you know everybody works at the the coal mine and you yeah. know you've got generations of people doing the same thing. Like that, that may be the case for some uh, people, but there was a lot of latitude uh, to to kind of you know figure out what you're going to do and and uh, have people who could help you uh, you know chase some of those dreams. So. For me, I you know, was always kind of a creative kid and was really into photography and, and uh, those types of endeavors. And so I, I was able to, to sort of exercise and, and uh, work out those muscles, creatively speaking, when I was a kid. Um, and then ultimately ended up coming to the University of Texas, where originally I thought that I was going to study political science, and, uh, which I did. But ultimately kind of went down the path of uh, advertising and, and the kind of creative field. So I uh, spent four years at, at UT and uh, ultimately just realized that, you know, kind of doing the law school and, and the, the political science thing wasn't really my jam um, and ended up in advertising and working for a small ad agency here in Austin, which kind of was the beginning of my uh, creative career and ultimately what led to me uh, ending up in e-commerce some years later.
0: Very cool. And when I was doing a bit of research, I saw that the creative agency or the advertising agency was only... Six people, so you were able to hear about the business deals, like learn about the business side of things, as long as the creative piece as well.
1: Yeah, it was a great little firm called uh, the Butler Bros, and the two uh, principals there, Adam and Marty Butler, had both had some really you know high level, uh, well positioned roles at the big ad agency here in Austin called GSDM, and so they had that kind of front row seat to these really large deals that um, you know bigger agencies kind of deal with. Uh, but he eventually went and started their own firm. And and yeah, in those first few years, there were just a handful of them. So I was able to sit in the room and as you know, this college intern had access to a lot of, you know, kind of uh, conversations and things that I don't think that most, you know, ad agency interns would typically have access to. And as a result, I, you know, really think that it, it propelled my career forward in a way that, you know, when when I ended up starting a little uh, design studio with some friends and and building out the early years of my career, I felt more prepared to operate kind of ahead of my years because of some of those experiences and the things that you just kind of pick up when you happen to be in the room with uh, the principals of two companies.
0: Yep. So where did you jump to next after the advertising company?
1: So I um, I'd done that for a while and then uh, went freelance after working for them. Uh, you know, they gave me some really great advice on the tail end of my career there. Uh, you know, I was curious whether they were going to hire me to work for them or not, and you know, at the time they were sort of indicating that you know not likely uh, that you know I, I hadn't really had enough of a specialty up until that point uh, to make it worthwhile for me to be you know somebody who was there full time. So really great as an intern, but not so much as, as kind of a, a full flung employee. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, um, you know, the, their advice was to go out and try to specialize in something, uh, which ultimately, uh, ended up being photography. And so I went and started to focus on, um, photography as a whole and developed a, uh, career as a commercial photographer and, um, ultimately did that for about 10 years. The, uh, you know, the, the, I guess the, the eventual, you know, destination in this story that's worthwhile to your listeners is that uh, during that period, I started a small ad agency uh, or a little kind of design firm called Public School with a group of friends. And uh, we had this kind of motif that was all based off of the kind of 1960s era of graphic design, um, specifically around like school books and textbooks. And so when we started publishing uh, to our blog and and publishing about our work, People really gravitated towards the, uh, the t-shirts and the, the various kind of pieces of collateral that we had designed for that brand. So we were really excited because we thought, well, why don't we capitalize on this and, and start an online store, um, which we did, and um, almost immediately had a ton of sales uh, for t-shirts and various items that we were selling, which was massively exciting. Uh, but, you know, as with most people who sell things online, it's really funny to see, or it's real fun to see that money and, and those sales come in. Uh, it's not a ton of fun to have to deal with getting all those orders out after the fact. And ultimately that's kind of what we ran into was uh, a lot of excitement around, um, you know, making the money, but not a lot of excitement around having to deal with the shipments. And so, um, the work associated with having to get those packages out the door was so time consuming and unfun, uh, that I swore off ever getting back into e-commerce again. So, uh, You know, suffice it to say, it's a little bit funny um, to find myself sitting here, you know, about 11 or 12 years later, uh, the CEO of an e-commerce logistics brand, you know, shipping the number of packages that we are every day.
0: That's great. So what year was the store live? And did you shift right into the logistics business? Or did that come a bit later?
1: No, I, uh, you know, I launched our online store in 2013. You know, the the social media audience for Texas Humor, I developed over a few years before that. And then in 2013, got it off the ground and started you know, uh, trying to get it to uh, you know, scale. And um, initially, we were just kind of shipping the orders out of my, my home garage. But uh, over time, basically, we had you know, decided to uh, try to outsource the work because we had just gotten so sick of, of dealing with the scale and uh, having a, a tough time, you know, kind of getting out of our own way as business owners. And uh, I reached out to some 3PLs and uh, one of the ones here in Austin just kind of had a a very snarky and and negative approach to uh, telling me that it wasn't really the right time, uh, which ultimately led to us just kind of getting a little bit of a chip on our shoulder about it and deciding to just do it ourselves.
0: Mm -hmm. So what kind of pushback were you getting when you're reaching out to these 3PLs? I mean, other than them saying that you were too small um, for what they probably wanted to work with.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it really, that sums it up, right? It's, it's mostly, you're too small for this to be worthwhile. And, you know, look, I I, I don't have a problem with that. I, I run an organization that has to say that to people as well. The difference though, is that culturally our approach is to say that it's not a no, it's a not right now. Mm-hmm. And what we'd rather do is try to be a resource for some of these companies to help them understand what would make them qualify to work with a 3PL and or make it cost effective for both parties to be in a mutually beneficial relationship. A lot of, I think, small merchants sort of just get in this mindset that, you know, it, their business is worthwhile and, you know, they're ready to just kind of offload and go. And, you know, in my case, I, I recognized that we were too small kind of at the time. What I was trying to point out to the guy was that, you know, we're not big enough to be worthwhile today, but let me sit down and show you the marketing plan and all the things that we're gonna do that will make us worthwhile in the very short near future. And that was just not something he was really willing to to listen to. Mm -hmm. So that was very much a an approach that just rubbed me the wrong way and was something that has definitely informed how we kind of coach uh, brands as they come to us and we have to turn them away because of a number of reasons. Like sometimes it's just we're gonna be more expensive than it is even worthwhile for you to be doing your working with us. So until you hit certain a, a certain uh, level, you're going to be spending more money than you are making uh, just to facilitate paying us to do the work, and that's not a you know that's not a good position to be in for anybody. So let's let's avoid that and try to find something that's going to be beneficial for for everyone, and that might mean not today, but in the near future. So let me help you fast forward by giving you some tips and some other things that can help you get there quicker.
0: Yep, that's great. So before we dive too deep into the logistics piece, I was hoping you could touch a bit on Texas humor so people know. You know, how you created Texas Humor, what it turned into, and what you were trying to sell to even start talking to a 3PL.
1: Yeah, you know, Texas Humor, um, you know, like over, over my career, I've done a lot of this kind of audience building um, with our brand uh, at our old studio. And for me personally, as a photographer, you know, uh, audience building has been a big aspect of what I've always done. And Texas Humor was just kind of this idea that, you know, sort of was born out of a discussion with one of the partners in the design studio I was in in which we were just talking through, you know, what different audiences could we build and, you know, where we could we go with that? And so I started from nothing, started just kind of tweeting about, you know, Texas as a whole. And that's ultimately really like where we, we developed the, the idea. Well, there was no specific e-commerce goal in mind. Um, but once we realized that we had a few million followers, you know, and, and this kind of captive audience that we could do something with, that was the point at which it, we decided, you know, why don't we, try to make this into a little bit more of a business and ultimately where, you know, we got the idea to start Texas humor.com, but it wasn't this, you know, uh, this big strategic thing in which we said, Hey, we're going to go start this and we're going to build a store and we're going to do X, Y, and Z. It was far more uh, organic than that. Um, but I took the background that I had in marketing and advertising and leveraged that to really scale up what we were doing probably much faster than, than most organizations would, who would, you know, be doing something like what we were doing at
0: the time. Yep. So how did you, you know, develop that audience and get in front of people? I mean, I think I see now that you have over 2 million followers on your social channels. And mm-hmm. so like, how long did it take to get a, you know, a big enough audience that then you were like, oh, maybe we should try and sell something to them as well. And what did that process look like?
1: I mean, it was a couple of years before we actually did um, try to try to actually sell anything to anybody because at the time we were just so averse to to e-commerce and you know, wanting to, to develop any sort of, um, you know, uh, inventory position or anything like that. So we didn't, we didn't come out of the gates thinking like, Oh yeah, we're going to totally, you know, go do this, this thing, you know, and, and have it be focused on e like that. That was very much, uh, later on down the road. The, the goal that we had initially was to just try to make, you know, some form of money, but it wasn't, it, it by no means was, a uh, you know, let's, let's try to focus on e-commerce, Originally, it was probably it was it was more so of a, a content advertising play, um, and that's really what kind of drove it in the in the early years.
0: Got it. And what are some tips around building up that audience? What are some tactics and strategies that maybe you even use to this day to build up an audience?
1: You know, I mean, I, I'm a big believer that uh, I don't remember who told me this, but I, I, maybe I made it up. I don't know, but I. I just kind of see content and advertising as like a, a guest in people's homes. And, you know, mo- most people do not want someone who's going to come over to their house for dinner and just spend the entire time talking about themselves. Mm-hmm. And so as brands or, or you know, uh, content generation, you know, organizations, if the only thing we're doing is kind of going me, 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 then of course people are going to be turned off by it. Like that that's the exact you know definition of bad advertising yep. uh, so for for us and and for kind of how I thought about building Texas humor initially, it was really trying to you know think and and put myself in in the shoes of the people who you know were our audience and and sort of try to say the things that they had on their mind already so you know there's no science to that necessarily and and you know I think it's why, yes, there are probably some i don't know formulas for kind of going going viral quote unquote but you know, a lot of the things that that do ultimately go viral have this kind of weird X factor that people have a hard time wrapping their head around. And in my mind, you know, that X factor is that it kind of comes from the heart and it like resonates with people. So if you really wanted to know, like, what is it that we do that's different than everybody else? You know, we're not the only brand or the only feed that talks about Texas, but I do think that we're the only one that tries not to just purely, you know, patronize people. Um, And I think that that's really, you know, what, uh, kind of set us apart early on. Um, we were trying to be unique. We were trying to provide quality. And we weren't just doing social media for the sake of doing social media. You know, the, the store almost felt like uh, a secondary function of the, the the audience that we had built and not the other way around, uh, which is, you know, where I think a lot of brands kind of start. Um, they say, well, how do we sell, you know, to everybody? And, and then they kind of think about everything after the fact. And in my mind, that's really the wrong way to approach it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I like Love the idea of building a community first and just focus on making that great. I know we've um, had someone from Food52 on the show previously and they had the same experience where they're like, we're just here to build a good blog, good content, make sure our community, you know, likes what they're getting from us and can also engage with each other. And then it was just obvious to start selling products and giving them what they wanted based on, you know, the recipes we were showing and the maybe materials we were using and whatnot.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's... It really, you know, the, the, the strongest brands are the ones that kind of think about the commerce secondly. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're brand, depending upon what it is you're selling, like you're, your brand may be the content, but in our case, it's not. Our brand really is... Um, it, it, the content is the brand versus the brand being the content, if that makes sense, right? Yep. So that, that's really the difference is, is we, we took that tack.
0: All right. So let's talk a little bit about the logistics arm of Salseda Industries. Tell me why did you or how did you even decide we're going to go into fulfillment and logistics?
1: Uh, I mean, mostly for the, uh, the the reason I described earlier. I mean, we 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 were already doing it for ourselves, and it ultimately just was a, a way to kind of cover the costs that we had as an organization. You know, most fulfillment operations are a cost center, not really a revenue driver. So um, those types of things tend to be an area where you're you're like losing money or you're you know killing your margin. So we saw it as an opportunity to to make some money rather than uh, just have people kind of carry it as as dead weight.
0: And what kind of mistakes do you see brands making today when they start exploring the path of working with a 3PL?
1: I think, you know, most brands just kind of make the the assumption that uh, their time is less valuable than they think it is, or or the kind of leaders of the brands uh, tend to think that. And so as a result, they they don't farm out the things that they should be. not having like uh, accounting firms from outside handle your books, mm-hmm. not working with, uh, you know, I don't, well, a logistics company to handle fulfillment. Like there's this kind of idea that most entrepreneurs have that the uh, you know, they can do things for cheaper and faster than most people. And, and that's probably the case, but in terms of sort of uh, opportunity costs, Having the CEO of an online brand, you know, handle all of the the orders uh, simply to to save a little bit of money or to not have an invoice that they have to pay for that, it's like that, that's not really the right way to be thinking about it. So we just really try to coach people on opportunity cost and help them understand those types of things.
0: Yep. And are there any bets right now that you're making? in the world of logistics where it's headed i mean it seems like consumer preferences and demands are definitely increasing around everyone wants one to two day shipping amazon's kind of made everyone expect that now what kind of things are you guys leaning into or investing in right now to keep up with those trends
1: you know everybody says that and i actually don't believe that at all yeah. i think that everybody thinks that that's the case because that's in my opinion what like the major news outlets say or pundits on tv but mm-hmm. i've not found that to be the case i think if if people are buying you know, toilet paper, yeah, they need that in one to two days. But if they're buying something very specific from your brand, they'll get it when they get it. You know, I I, I don't, I actually think that there's more price sensitivity to shipping than most people think. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you know, people kind of know what they're paying for. And in the case of Amazon, like, you know, sure, if if what you sell is available from, you know, 75 other people on Amazon, yeah, you better hope that it's Prime enabled and it's cheap and all the above. But if you've built a brand that sells something very specific that only you carry, then, you know, um, if you build the desire, then people will, you know, they'll, they'll get it when they get it. But it's not this type of thing where just because they can get toilet paper or uh, Miss Meyers like baths or uh, kitchen soap in two days uh, means that they need their Texas Humor shirt in two days, too. hmm. So I, I'm I'm like a pretty adamant person when it comes to that that case because uh, I, I get that question a ton and and I think a lot of people say that but no one has actually really proven to me that, that that's true. Now if you ask people their preference, they're all going to tell you two days. Yeah. But I think that we don't deal or we don't work in this sort of like vacuum in which every single store and shopping experience that happens online is compared the, you know, equally, I think most customers, um, who are shopping online, uh, are doing so with it in mind that like, whatever it is that they're buying is kind of unique to that experience. And so, so long as the brand is setting their expectations up front about what, you know, the experience is going to be for the customer. I, I don't, I really just don't think it's as you know, much of a challenge as most people think it will be to get the orders when, you know, out the door, whenever they're going to get them out the door.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I definitely can see that. It definitely depends on what the product is. Like you're saying, if it's diapers, like, yeah, I need that to like right now (laughs) in an hour Versus because I probably didn't think about it until last minute versus, I mean, I just ordered, you know, earrings from this one company, uh, Majuri, I don't know how to say their name, but I don't mind if it comes in a week, that's okay. Because they're the only ones selling this, you know, product that I want and I'm okay with waiting.
1: Correct. Correct.
0: I definitely think there's a lot of room for brands to be more transparent around the shipping though. And I would yeah. rather have someone under-promise and over-deliver than tell me something where you know, it might actually get delayed where I'm betting on that.
1: No, and I, I think that that's absolutely correct. Um, I, I do believe that there are a lot of brands who do, who do a pretty poor job of, of being clear about those things. So no, I, I'm, I'm 100% with you on that. Um, but I, I do think that a lot of people just kind of make the assumption that everybody's going to care about it more than they, they actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, which is partially why, you know, I'm adamant about trying to dispel with that rumor.
0: Yeah. Well, you're doing it here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the one thing I was just reading about too was about delays in shipping and how, you know, there's going to be a lot of kind of shakeups in that area, especially if the COVID vaccine gets approved. I don't know if you've read about this a bit, but how if, it's, if this starts being something that's going to be shipped everywhere, which is what would happen if it's approved, it's going to delay all the postage everywhere. Have you read any bit about this or thought about things like that that are a little bit less predictable than, you know, other things that would maybe delay shipping that a brand should be aware yeah, of? So,
1: I mean, I, I've, I've actually spoken with some people, uh, on the inside of FedEx and, and a few other places, you know, there, there are two major vaccines that are out right now, right? There's the one, uh, by Pfizer, and then there's another one by, uh, the other organization I'm trying to blank on, both of which require, uh, cold storage mm-hmm. for the transit. So. The, the the Pfizer vaccine in particular requires cold chain storage that is very, very specific to you know medical purposes. And so you're not sticking this on a FedEx truck. This is going on a very, very specific type of vehicle, uh, none of which uh, carry any of your packages from my store to your house.
0: Mm-hmm. So they wouldn't be shared, you're saying? Even if it was a cold storage company like a kombucha company or food, they would never be shared on the same truck anyway, so that it's not like a uh, the same pie that you're pulling from, that is what you're saying.
1: Correct. Uh, okay. The, the, there, there is not, it, it is not a, uh, a similar supply chain. Cold chain storage is wildly different or cold chain, you know, uh, transit is wildly different than the, the type of, you know, process that, that we have in place for your regular parcel. So yes, uh, I would believe that a massive amount of distribution taking place all of, all of a sudden would uh, certainly you know strain fedex as as a organization, but the the van delivering packages to you from Amazon or from My store or any of the stores that service us is not the store the, is not the van who is going to be carrying you know these products uh, to the end locations. Even the other the the other vaccine, although it, it doesn't require the same kind of negative, 20 Celsius or whatever uh, you know temperature requirement that, that the Pfizer one does, it does still require refrigerated storage on its way to the endpoint. So, I think it's a lot of people sort of you know circling the word logistics and saying like everything under this is going to be affected. But you know within logistics, there's so many different styles of shipping or, or kind of needs around shipping, and for that reason, you know not everything in a Venn diagram of like who services what. In large part, the cold chain um, network is not really one that is as easily affected or or or, or would would affect the, the the networks that you and I typically expect our packages to come through
0: got it okay yeah that's interesting yeah I didn't read too much into it but I'm like hmm that's a good uh, good black Swan event to prepare for for some brands then if they do do the cold chain shipping or- I mean if, if you're
1: buying you know food uh, food uh, subscriptions and things like that from you know, like if you if you do Blue Apron or one of these, yeah, you're more likely to. But you know what? Uh, more of that is actually the result of of limited supply of uh, dry eyes, mm-hmm. and um, and that's the result. I mean, I can get into all of that, but the dry eye shortage is a result of less driving, uh, which means lower cost of of uh, oil, which means less drilling for oil, which means less petroleum byproducts, which means less carbon dioxide, which ultimately means less frozen carbon dioxide, which is dry eyes. So. Yes, there are aspects of the bit of the industry that will be affected, but like the underwear that you're ordering from Amazon uh, should not be affected by a ramp up in cold chain transit volume overall.
0: True. Good. I was worried about that. I really needed my yeah. round time. <laughs>
1: yeah. Exactly.
0: All right. Cool. So the one thing I was thinking about too, when it comes to logistics, if I'm a new brand and I'm thinking about exploring, you know, having a three PL to work with, what are some things that I need to get in order before? Going that route because I can imagine, you know, some companies coming to you with it being chaos behind the scenes, and you're like, I can't work with you until you at least have this, this, and this in order for us to plug and play. Like, how should a brand prepare before even reaching out to 3PLs?
1: I think a lot of brands, you know, will, will never really give things like their SKUs and, you know, the tags that they used and all of that, like a second thought. They're sort of cobbling together a plan, and then you're two or three years in, and you've got a store with sort of three different naming conventions and, and all that. And, and clean data is really what makes the world run mm-hmm. smoothly in the logistics world. And so if if there's not a, a really strong focus on, on attention to that, uh, you end up with a pretty significant issue, you know, trying to work with the 3PL because you have to go back and clean all that up. So, um, most of, of my suggestion is, you know, look, like try to, try to think through that. And, you know, it's kind of the spring cleaning exercise that I think a lot of brands ha- or should go through every year, kind of looking back and saying, you know, are the ways that I structure my data and my reporting the way that will allow me to be really successful at scale? And if the answer is no to any of that, then, you know, go back to the drawing board and like try to make sure that you're adjusting for that because it, it certainly uh, creates a lot of issues as you try to scale your business up.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, we've had a couple people on the show talk about making sure that you plan for your data dictionary and have it cleaned up from the very start, if you can, so that you're not trying to fix everything after the fact. Correct. So it sounds like you've kind of definitely been on top of the market or trends or even, you know, news, just like we mentioned earlier about the (laughs) vaccine and stuff. What kind of trends or patterns are you excited about right now over the next couple of years?
1: You know, I, I think just in general, uh, there's, there's more attentiveness to better and more like targeted marketing that I think people are going to be excited to interact with. So from a just kind of overall perspective, I, I get excited by um, the idea that I'm not going to get emails that are just boring and seem to be broadly targeted to kind of everybody. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that as more small brands leverage tools like Klaviyo, And shoelace and things like that. I I think that just overall, marketing as a as a kind of like competitive sport becomes more fun. And as a consumer, it's a lot more fun to watch.
0: Yep. So, how are you guys leaning into the targeted marketing?
1: I mean, I think it's exactly what I said. Just mostly trying to think about. You know, we're not just selling to one person sitting on a couch, repeated three thousand times over. We're selling to three thousand different people. So, I think if if most people most marketers are, you know, think that their job is done simply because they came up with a campaign. Like that's a bummer, you know. So I, I think the the more work that gets put in to try to wow people, so their their brand can connect with them directly, the, the better. And you know, when it comes to email, the way that we do that is through segmentation, and we try to look at all the various segments of behaviors that people who uh, might interact with our brand uh, would be members of, and then trying to to you know evolve the creative that we're, we're developing, uh, in a way that seems to speak to them directly. So they, you know, feel like when they receive something from us, it's not just this blanket email that says, come shop at Texas humor. It's really, you know, uh, touching on their, their, the size of clothing that they've purchased in the past or the types of content that they're really into, you know, those types of things.
0: Got it. Okay. So you're looking at types of content or you're maybe showcasing things based on size. What other kind of behaviors are you segmenting right now to be able to craft your message differently?
1: I mean, the the highest or the the kind of best way to say it is around recency and frequency. So we look at the various behaviors on a store and try to segment based off of the recency and frequency of them doing whatever that behavior might be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and that's really, I mean, there's there's a lot more detail than, than I can probably go into on, on this show, but I would say that uh, starting with that is a really great way to make sure that you're not just, you know, like I think the word email blast is, or the phrase email blast is a bad, bad phrase because you definitely should not just be blasting people with anything. I think it's really critical that, that uh, you know, you, you be more surgical with how you send, or, you know, emails out to your, your customers. So that way people feel like they actually have a, they're having a conversation with the, the brands that are emailing them.
0: Yep. Yeah. I think it'd be really great if I were to get an email that said, Hey, Stephanie, we saw you're moving to Austin. Here's a bumper sticker for your drive or something, you know, being able to find data like that, that like connects with me in a different way of like, Oh, wow, that's cool. I didn't think about a bumper sticker or whatever it may be, but uh, because you know a little bit about me like that, I'm going to come to your website and explore a bit more.
1: Yeah, Exactly.
0: All right, so let's move over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask a question and you have a minute or less. Are you ready, Jay? Yep. All right, what's up next on your reading list?
1: I will say I haven't read much in the last couple of weeks because I've been so focused on um, on uh, getting everything out the door, but you know, I'll probably actually read The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. Yeah. Uh, I read Stillness is the Key, which was great. Um, but obstacle is always uh, one that a lot of people have been telling me I should read.
0: Yep. Yeah, I read that. It is good. What is one trend or topic or piece of tech that you don't understand that you wish you did?
1: Um, I wish that I could uh, personally uh, write SQL queries and, and uh, you know, do more database work and like uh, business analysis myself.
0: Yep. That is a good skill to have that I still appreciate to this day. I used to work at Fannie Mae and I'd be all up in sequel all the time. And it comes back even till today where I'm like, hey, I at least kind of know what that query mm-hmm. is looking for. That's a good skill. And then the last one, what's up next on your Netflix queue? Uh,
1: I'm eagerly awaiting the next season of The Crown. Uh, yes. I know it's like, uh, like two years away or something like that, but uh, I'm absolutely uh, eagerly awaiting that.
0: Yeah, same. I'm excited about that. All right, Jay. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you Thanks so much for coming on here. Where can people find out more about you and Salseda Industries? Uh,
1: they can find out more about me on my Twitter account, uh, which you can just find uh, my full name, JB Salseda, J A Y B S A U C E D A. I'm everywhere on social media on that username, and uh, and then obviously our website, SalsedaIndustries.com. So uh, if you have any questions about the logistics space um, and how it relates to e-commerce or you're just kind of curious about uh, tips on how your brand can best work with a 3PL, happy to answer those or connect you with somebody on my team who can. Um, we'd like to be a resource and a community for, for e-commerce brand owners because we know that it's a, a big jungle out there and we have navigated it once or twice. So to the best of our ability, we'd love to help people uh, take the shortcuts um, when we know where they are.
0: Amazing. Thanks so much, Jay. And I'll see you in Austin.
1: Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks so much.
0: everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce.
2: Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.